podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. Now, farming has always been a lot more than just about growing crops and animals. And in the case of animal production, there are few people that are more in tune with the needs and the required care for the animals than the farmers themselves. And that's an idea that often gets lost when people talk about animal welfare. In Australia, however, which is one of the most urbanised countries of the world, the practical reality of the actual needs of animals seems to be blurred by a population who relate more to pets that are conditioned to a soft household family life than production animals on a farm. Most Australians will never meet a production animal and the closest they get to the source of animal-based food or fibre is their supermarket shelf or their clothing outlet. We've gone too far in our perception of what animals really need as against what we think they would like. Are we overestimating the emotional intelligence of our production animals and how much do we know about the levels that animals actually feel emotions or perceive things, which is known as animal sentience? To help us understand these highly emotive areas in a factual and pragmatic way and to help us differentiate animal rights from animal welfare, I've invited two key agriminers who have devoted much research and scholarship into trying to find the answers. The Australian Farm Institute is an agricultural policy research body committed to developing and analysing proven science and fact that should underlie both the policy and the practice of farm production. And we're joined today by its former long-standing executive director, Mick Keogh, OIM. Welcome to Agriminders, Mick. Thank you, Chris. Mick, can I start off with asking you about live animal exports? Why do we need to have live animal exports as part of the business uh, in Australia? Uh, There's a number of different aspects to that. I suppose the first is that uh, predominantly the northern half of Australia is very extensive pastoral production and very low levels of stocking rates and very uncertain uh, pasture and seasonal conditions. So the ability to consistently finish grazing livestock to a market weight in those regions is, is very uncertain. And in fact, where in the case of a normal pasture production system, you might start marketing livestock uh, cattle at, for example, 18 months to two years of age, in that environment in Northern Australia, the opportunity to get them to the the normal commercial weight for sale uh, might take four to six years, if ever. So it's a very uncertain production environment and therefore almost, uh, well, very difficult to get those animals to a consistent marketable live weight for the normal slaughter market that applies in Australia. Um, And then on top of that, there's, of course, the sparsity of the number of animals in those regions. So the economics of getting them together, finishing them to a, to a slaughter weight and then having them processed is, uh, is just not there. So the ability to turn those animals off at a younger weight, uh, a younger age and a younger weight and have them, for example, move to uh, a feedlot in uh, Indonesia 
to be finished to a marketable weight and then processed there, the economics of it stack up much, much better than any of the alternatives. If we didn't have that available as an option, would those countries then buy from perhaps our southern markets, um, from, you know, refrigerated meat or frozen meat um, from us in any case, or would they also require to have these as live animals rather than as meat? Well, in the case of Indonesia, for example, there's um, quite um, concerted trade rules because, of course, the Indonesian government is interested in the welfare of its own citizens and the model of live exports creates uh, jobs and opportunities on the ground in Indonesia as well as delivering fresh meat product to uh, local markets, which of course don't have the coverage of refrigeration and cold chain systems that uh, that apply in Australia. So in, in other countries, for example, the Middle East with live sheep, um, the same situation applies. So, uh, yes, there is a bit of a, a fallacy that if we didn't supply uh, the live animals, that uh, th- that market would simply transfer to to a processed meat market, uh, creating jobs, etc. Here in Australia, but in fact, the reality is that it doesn't. And the the best example I think I can give is Saudi Arabia in two thousand and eleven, when Australia introduced very stringent exporter supply chain uh, controls that included uh, restrictions on uh, how the animals could be moved within the countries to which they were exported to. Saudi Arabia said, no, that's in preaching on our sovereignty and we're therefore not going to source animals from Australia under those conditions. So now they source those animals from uh, Ethiopia, Somalia uh, and Romania, for example, um, so the notion that if uh, Australia switched off supply to these markets, uh, it would simply transfer to a processed meat market just doesn't stack up at all. Uh, it, it's just that's not the case. So the problems that we've had, you know, that have been put on our television screens and on the radio um, as regards animal welfare... Most of those, the industry has blamed on compliance and uh, and, in, and the ability to enforce the standards that we have already regulated. Is that really the problem or are the regulations themselves not strict enough and not, if you like, uh, compliant with the perceptions of what the animal welfare standards should be in the general population? Well, I think I think there's two elements to your question and I guess it's, the first one is uh, the extent to which the regulations and the enforcement of them is adequate. And the second is the issue of public perceptions of the standards that are appropriate. So so if we look at the first one, SCAS... So SCAS stands for? Exporter Supply Chain Assurance Scheme. So it's a scheme that was introduced in Australia in 2011 which essentially requires that whoever has control of those animals has to maintain control of those animals right through to the point of slaughter and they can only ever be in an accredited facility right through. So there's no leakage, if you like, allowed of those animals out of um, an accredited uh, facility, be that a feedlot or, or be that an abattoir. So it really requires the recipient country to have accredited facilities right through the supply chain uh, to ensure the welfare of those animals. 
that is the most stringent uh, standard for animal welfare of any country in the world. And remember, there's somewhere between 30 and 50 countries export live animals, including most countries in the European Union, South America and uh, and African countries. So of all those countries, uh, there's no question that the Australian standard is the most stringent of any. I think some of the issues with it relate to the extent to which it has been in the past enforced um, and and compliance has been required. I certainly think there has been situations in the past based on the evidence that's available where um, there clearly hasn't been strong enough compliance and when there's a breakdown occurs, of course, that has a major implication for the entire sector. But recognising that, I think it is important to realise that when you look at the, for example, on-water mortality rates for livestock being exported from Australia, they are now on average considerably below the normal mortality rates that apply on farm in Australia. So uh, the, the, the arrangements now that generally, and I use the word generally carefully, generally apply to on-ship conditions and treatment of live animals exported from Australia actually result in less mortality than the normal management of livestock on farms in Australia. And that's available through the statistics. That's not to say that there aren't on occasion situations where things go wrong. And we've seen that a couple of times recently and, and they have to be addressed. But I think it is important to start from that point and recognise that standard. Then the second part of your question was in relation to uh, the community's perceptions of what is an appropriate standard. And I think that's a really difficult issue because I think um, most of the community, which Australia is about the most urbanised country in the world apart from places like Singapore, for example, most of the community never has exposure to uh, livestock management systems and particularly livestock processing systems. So I think most of the community would react in a negative way even if they were given exposure to, for example, feedlots and, and meat processing facilities here in Australia. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So the the extent to which they react then to uh, uh, video or imagery, imagery of breakdowns in the supply chain is, I think, uh, driven by the reality of um, their perceptions of how livestock are managed more generally, which which they don't have any idea of. So I think to be exposed to some of the imagery, um, it, it's just extraordinary. I mean, I liken it to um, a comparison in the kangaroo industry where there's a lot of reaction against culling of kangaroos, um, which amounts to somewhere between one or two million animals a year, whereas um, based on our annual statistics, we know that anywhere up to 10 or 15 million kangaroos die during a drought from starvation and thirst. Um, so, you know, we've got this incredible dichotomy in community perceptions where um, uh, for example, kangaroo harvesting is perceived as bad and campaigned against, yet at the same time that same community seemingly ignores the fact that, you know, tens and tens of millions of kangaroos 
will inevitably perish during a drought and, and there's no uh, reaction to that. So that's the, the interesting dichotomy that the industry needs to try and grapple with in thinking about uh, how live exports work. But doesn't it also bring us to this question that we've got people from particularly, as you say, a very urbanised society who are trying to apply the standards they would almost apply to themselves to animals. And I'm not only thinking of live animal trade, I'm also thinking of things like free-range chickens. Um, you know, people think, well, if I was a chicken, you know, I'd like to be outside in the in the grass and, and sort of enjoying the sunlight and so on. And yet in reality, when you give chickens the option of being inside or being out, inside with all their other social environment with the other chickens and uh, and in the warmth and near their food and water, a very low percentage choose to go outside. But we still impose these standards that we perceive these animals want. And I notice that the RSPCA even, which is probably one of the, the more reasonable uh, animal rights organisations, is considering that we need to think about animals' feelings and, and and animals' perceived desires as much as we do about straight cruelty issues. Uh, that's right, and you've certainly seen that in recent times on this issue of sentience, animal sentience. So that's this issue of the inference or the um, the perception that there is a level of intelligence, um, which no one denies, but you know, almost equating it uh, equivalent to human sensibilities and then this anthropological um, projection of what that would be. So as you say, the, 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 the human projection is, well, look, I'd prefer to be walking around outside than I would standing around the shed all day. Uh, and so that projection is, is um, conferred onto how we should manage livestock. And, and that creates all sorts of issues because, of course, the mortality rates, the disease rates, the cannibalism, the all those sorts of issues are significantly higher in a free-range uh, poultry uh, situation, for example, compared to some of the other uh, production systems. So it, it really is a very difficult dilemma uh, for producers, farmers to, to deal with. And on top of that, there's also the standard requirement that food be cheap. So, so we run into this almost uh, impossible situation where Food has to be cheap, but at the same time, it has to be subject to these very stringent uh, and expensive production systems that most wouldn't understand how much extra cost that adds to a system. So I'm down here in Mildura at the moment and yesterday I was sitting on the banks of the Murray and, and there was a pair of geese that were mating. Now that was a pretty violent process involving the drake submerging the female goose in the water, you know, while he was climbing on her back. Now the people on the in the picnic site next to us were actually throwing rocks at the geese trying to break them up because they saw that as cruelty and yet that's cruelty and and poor uh, feelings for the for the uh, particular animal but in a completely natural environment and we're increasingly seeing I think people imposing our standards even on what would otherwise be natural occurrences I mean this is a whole new world surely when you're trying to introduce that into animal husbandry Mick uh, very much so, uh, and and you see that in terms of uh, you know, if if we did go back to so-called natural, the order of order of predators determines who lives and who dies, and and in fact, you know, most 
of our domesticated livestock would uh, would last a very limited period of time. Uh, and so so we can't have the level of food production and the cheapness of food production we have while at the same time forcing agriculture to revert back to, to a so-called natural standard of production. So it really is a very difficult issue. Um, the, the challenge is not just the perceptions of consumers. I think the challenge is that the perceptions of consumers drives the positioning of other participants in the supply chain, so major retailers, uh, major food processors, ex- for example. So they uh, they want and to... Surely and legis- surely the legislators as well, Mick. Well, to a certain extent, but I, I think that we're actually in an environment now where the perceptions of the major processors and retailers about what will appeal to consumers is having more impact on the limitations of production systems than perhaps the, 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 the role of the regulators. Now, I guess you would say in the live exports that's not the case, but if you look at domestic production systems, for example, you know, the phasing out of, um, uh, of caged eggs is purely at the decision of the major retailers, not, um, not at the decision of the legisla- legislators. So you're seeing the consumer perceptions drive through to affecting decisions being made by the major retailers and processors, which in turn uh, then has consequences for for producers. So, uh, you know, I think that that is another issue we need to think about. Perception is reality, particularly to... Uh, governments trying to get re-elected, particularly to, as you say, uh, people trying to to uh, sell products and to keep a, a business going in the light of human uh, opinion. Um, if we, in the end, did what New Zealand have done and abandoned our live animal exports completely, would though, from what you said earlier, I get the sense that the countries who currently buy live animals wouldn't suddenly say, "Great, well now send us the meat." They would simply just move to other countries, like in South America and so on. Um, and my understanding is that the standards on the exports out of those countries, you know, make ours look gold-plated. Uh, you're correct, but I'll, I'll start off with a point that you made right at the start, and this is often talked about, that New Zealand decided to cease live exports. What it actually decided to cease was live exports for slaughter. So it's still involved in live exports, for example, uh, in terms of dairy heifers going to places like China. And, and I think that's an interesting thing that some have argued that in fact, that is potentially a worse treatment of animals than live export for slaughter because you're shifting those animals to, for example, uh, 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 another country and you have no control over how they're, they're managed for the rest of their life while they're still involved in production. So an interesting issue there. But certainly on your more general point, the standards that are applied for live exports from Australia and the control we exercise over them right through to the point of slaughter is certainly not matched by anyone else in the world. And in fact, the World Animal Health uh, Organisations recognise that SCAS is the highest standard that's applied anywhere. 
but what you're saying is exactly right. And and I, I cited that example of what happened in Saudi Arabia where uh, they decided they didn't want to adhere to the requirements of SCAS. Uh, they stopped sourcing sheep from Australia and they now source them from countries in uh, Northern Africa and Eastern Europe, which don't have any restrictions whatsoever on how those livestock are managed once they land in the recipient country. So there's an almost a, a NIMBY effect here where uh, it seems to be that the argument in Australia is, well, as long as our animals aren't treated badly, we'll ignore the rest. The reality was, of course, that the implications of the SCAS standard meant that there was significant upgrading occurring of processing and livestock management facilities in places like Indonesia and the Middle East, and there still are, um, because they want to comply with the Australian standard and therefore keep receiving Australian livestock. So um, the fact that Australia maintains its exports of live animals to those countries, in fact, has a much more positive impact on animal welfare standards in those countries than does um, any banning of Australian exports to those countries. So the RSPCA argue that, um, you know, what happens in other places is not an excuse for us not to have the highest standard and therefore they're advocating for that abandonment completely. Um, my question would be, we, is the alternative where we become exemplars by which some sort of global standard would be instituted likely to be far more positive for I- improving animal welfare standards globally than just walking away from from it and saying, um, look, it's too hard, we can't do it, and so we'll leave it to you people and we don't care what you do. Well, that's and and that's certainly the development that's underway at the moment, but of course these uh, multinational agreements and standards take an awful long while, but certainly Australia is at the forefront of the adoption of a global standard for live animal exports, which is slowly making its way through the systems. Um, there hasn't been a huge amount of progress but certainly uh, Australia's been at the forefront. The SCAS system here has been substantially a model for the development of that. And uh, while ever Australia's still at the table, the the opportunity to advance that and to have a globally consistent standard is there. Were Australia to withdraw, it's unlikely that that will make any further progress because it's certainly not in the interests of uh, some of the developing nations that are now starting to increase their role in the business of live animal exports. So, Mick, um, there's new regulations now that have been brought in, and particularly in terms of stocking densities uh, on the live sheep export ships. Um, and the the comment has been made by the actual ships that the current densities probably just will not be economic. Uh, in terms of their ability to get a sheep landed in those countries and and have it at a price that's competitive, um, in your view, is that is that reasonable uh, comment? And secondly, um, if that is the case, should we be subsidising these exports just to keep the business going until the whole world adopts the same standards? At which case, that becomes the governing price globally. Uh, gosh, you could unpack that in, in a multiple number of different ways, that question. Um, I don't know enough about the economics of uh, live sheep exports to know whether, in fact, the controls in relation to the summer season exports that and the density uh, levels that are being proposed would make Australian sheep uneconomic uh, in terms of live exports to the Middle East. But 
I certainly do know that there is considerable competition in those markets and any notion that we can simply turn off our supply and the whole problem disappears is 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 completely wrong and and misguided. So certainly uh, there will be a point at which increasingly stringent uh, controls and regulations over live exports from Australia make it uneconomic. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I don't have you know, the the detailed knowledge to know whether we've reached that point or not. Uh, whether that then leads us to subsidise, I guess uh, in Australia we tend to not subsidise. We've got the lowest levels of agricultural subsidies virtually of any nation on earth and that's uh, generally understood uh, by those involved in agriculture. So whether that, that, that there's sufficient argument there to put a subsidy in place to retain a position in that market because our, our regulatory costs are too high. I, I, you know, I think that's an argument that would need to be played out in the public uh, in the public arenas. I'm not sure I chance my arm on answering that at the moment. Mick, uh, you mentioned about you know nature and kangaroos and all those sort of things. From your research at the Australian Farm Institute, have there been studies done that have measured measurable stress indicators in animals, for example, travelling on a live ship to the Middle East or, or to Indonesia versus um, the stress levels of an animal in Western New South Wales, say at the moment, um, down around Hay and those areas where where certainly feed is short and, and and, uh, and, and times aren't good. Now, traditionally, I know they measure stress by things like cortisol levels and so on, but um, how, how do we actually scientifically put um, facts around what is actually happening in terms of the animal compared to what we perceive might be happening by our own sort of mental attitude to it? Yeah, that's a very interesting area. And, and of course, that whole study of uh, stress indicators is probably much more advanced in relation to the intensive livestock industries like uh, pork and poultry and less so uh, the extensive livestock industries like uh, uh, pasture-fed sheep and cattle. The scientists do consider that they can use indicators of stress as as a way of assessing the extent to which uh, particular animal welfare practices are uh, acceptable or not from the point of view of the animal, but it's a hotly debated area and there's issues such as conditioning over time and exposure and, uh, you know, those sorts of things that um, make it a complicated area. So, you know, to explain that simply, if you bought a an, an animal, um, uh, a goat, for example, that's been running around Western New South Wales and put it in a confined pen it would be um, giving indications of considerable stress through both behaviour and you suspect uh, things like cortisol, whereas if it's conditioned to that over time, the the indicators wouldn't give the same signal. So there is some quite a deal of complexity about using just those pure indicators to indicate, you know, whether or not an animal's under stress. But the other, I guess, universal measure of uh, the well-being of an animal is, in fact, its ability to produce. So, you know, the ability to put on weight, the ability to produce fibre or or whatever a- as anticipated. And certainly on that basis, the reality is, of course, that most sheep on a live sheep exporter ship actually put on weight while they're in transit. And most of them uh, arrive in very healthy condition and 
and uh, survive the journey very well. Unfortunately, on occasions, that's not the case, and we've seen that in recent times. But by and large, the indicators at a production level, both in terms of intensive live box production and live exports, are that, in fact, the conditions uh, are quite amenable to the animal thriving in those conditions. Now, uh, you know, you'll get a lot of arguments about that, and, of course, that whole projection of human comfort onto the conditions animals are in comes into it as well, and that's very difficult to to sort out those bits and pieces. So, Mick, if you talk to the really extreme animal rights um, groups, they actually would not even advocate any form of animal husbandry. So they're, they're actually suggesting that that we shouldn't raise animals for, you know, for food production. Of course, that flies in the face of an increasing demand from countries which previously lived on rice and, and other traditional staples to now say they want quality proteins. But leaving that to one side... Um, do you see that vegetable-based protein, you know, meats made artificially, uh, possibly from fetal stem cells, which is the way of making it from animals, but increasingly they're also trying to make it out of, you know, soybeans and, and other vegetable-type products. How far are we from saying to that, you know, we could actually exist without a, an animal protein basis or fibre, for that matter, um, underlying or as big part of agriculture? I think we're a way off that Yet, and I think there's some quite confused thinking and perceptions associated with some of those uh, developments. Uh, the, the criticism is that, uh, for example, the livestock production systems have an enormous environmental footprint and it, it's very wasteful in terms of energy. And, and we know that to produce a a kilo of poultry requires typically about two kilos of grains. To produce a kilo of pork typically requires about four. To produce a kilo of beef typically requires about uh, seven to eight. So certainly the mathematics of energy conversion through animals has those numbers associated with it. But the flip side of that is the assumption that all that the resources utilised by animals uh, would in fact or could in fact be utilised as feed by humans without any expansion of, for example, the existing footprint of plant production. So what I mean by that is, uh, take Australia as an example, the majority of livestock are grazed on land that is not ideal for cropping or is part of a cropping rotation system. So the notion that you would simply displace those livestock and ramp up plant production, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. The, the negative consequences of that would be the increased propensity to grow or to attempt to grow crops in marginal country, the lack of rotationals, uh, opportunities uh, in terms of pasture and crops, and the need for increased uh, fertilisation and uh, chemical inputs into those cropping systems because they would be on more marginal land. So those that sort of criticise the environmental footprint of the livestock industry typically do so in a very simplistic way that 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 isn't correct relative to the reality of the situation. So I think we need to be careful about that. The second thing is that, um, as you indicated, the technologies that are currently being used to produce fake meat, things like... Uh, reliance on growth of a culture based on 
fetal stem cells where where the extract comes from the placenta and then is grown up in a laboratory to create uh, a meat product and that's a very expensive pathway. Or the other one is, uh, as you said, soy-based where uh, genetically modified yeast which essentially mirrors um, uh, hemoglobin, which is, of course, the, um, the, the red part of blood that gives uh, uh, the particular taste to animal protein. So, so you know, soybeans and uh, genetically modified heme are used to produce um, the other version of fake meat. So, you know, I think there's an interesting dichotomy there in that I don't know that the community has thought through the full implications of uh, what it would mean to shift to, for example, a, an entirely plant-based diet for humans. It would certainly dramatically increase the, the footprint of plant production systems. It would certainly uh, require more land degradation, a greater use of fertiliser, a greater use of chemicals, and it also has some quite significant issues around uh, industrial laboratory processes and the development of genetically modified proteins or products that mimic uh, some of the characteristics of meat. So I think when you add all that up together, I'm not sure that uh, the fake meats that uh, are are such a hot issue for investment at the moment necessarily are as meritorious as uh, some of their promoters are currently making them out to be. And I'm dubious about whether either consumers or the environmental uh, arrangements around those are as positive uh, about them. I think they're attractive to a segment of the market that has a high level of disposable income and is pretty concerned about these things. But when you look at the vast bulk of the world's population that are close to or under the poverty line, I'm not sure that that's necessarily all that attractive and nor, I think, is it culturally attractive for a lot of populations to to move to that sort of consumption. So I, I think we've got a bit of a way to go on that. And that, Mick, I think is probably a whole future episode of AgriMinders. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, you certainly and the Australian Farm Institute are certainly some of our most important AgriMinders in Australia. Uh, and I really appreciate your input and intellect into the debate. Thank you, Chris. Animal production is a key part of our agricultural business. The demand for both live animals and meat is increasing, whether we like it or not. And although the customer is not always right, as Walt Disney famously said, the customer is always the customer. We've heard from Mick that in Australia, we've set up the strictest animal welfare standards of any country in the world. We're one of the only countries in the world to set standards from paddock to abattoir for our sheep and cattle, wherever they are processed. So what do Australia's animal welfare bodies think is still lagging when it comes to the welfare of production animals? In our next episode, we'll hear from RSPCA Senior Policy Officer and eminent animal rights lawyer, Dr Jed Goodfellow. Join us again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, 
or search Agriminders on Apple Podcasts.